Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, some Republicans in Georgia have formed a Freedom Caucus. State Senator Greg Dolezal joins me to discuss what that means. Also, Atlanta's Catholic community has been working to go greener. Cat Doyle from the Archdiocese of Atlanta from the Archdiocese of Atlanta joins me with an update on how all that's working. Plus, NPR has a new podcast all about finding success. The host, name you may know, Jay Williams, former Duke Blue Devils standout guard, drops by for a look at the show. But first, this. Democrat Stacey Abrams officially hit the campaign trail today, this morning, holding her first in-person event in her run for Georgia governor. She accepted an endorsement of the Georgia AFL-CIO and its affiliated labor unions. And she took a shot at incumbent governor, Republican Brian Kemp. Abrams says Kemp's budget proposal, his promise to loosen gun laws and effort to only partially expand Medicaid, she says they all fall short of what Georgia needs. Now, over the next few months, we're going to see a lot of gimmicks. But given that we live in a time where Georgia's doing really well in sports, I'm going to use a different analogy. Rather than the gimmicks that we're seeing coming out of the governor's office, we need a game plan. Of course, Brian Kemp is facing a primary challenge from former from former U.S. Senator David Perdue. Speaking of the GOP, primary governor Brian Kemp is filing an ethics complaint against primary challenger, yes, former U.S. Senator David Perdue, for allegedly violating state campaign finance laws. Now, the complaint claims Perdue's campaign illegally coordinated with a fundraising group. Kemp says the website Georgia Values Fund gave visitors explicit directions for donating to Purdue's gubernatorial campaign. Now, a Purdue campaign spokesperson said the campaign isn't affiliated with the Georgia Values Fund. Meanwhile, Purdue is suing Kemp over a campaign finance law the governor signed last year that Purdue says benefits incumbents. We'll have more about that later. In related news, budget hearings continue this week at the state capitol, more than a month after electric car maker Rivian announced plans to build a $5 billion plant in Georgia. The state has not revealed the incentives that helped lure the company here. Now, Sam Greenglass, as you know, is our WABE politics reporter. He says Governor Brian Kemp's budget proposal may offer a few clues. Georgia's Department of Economic Development wants millions to build and operate a training and recruitment center for the electric vehicle industry, and more than $100 million for land. Here's the department's commissioner, Pat Wilson. Well, that's acquisition of land, it's due diligence costs, it's grading of 500-acre pad, and then it's the rail extension. All of that is really rolled into one line item. This is generational change for really an entire state. The plan will also include millions in tax incentives. Those details are still not public. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. 
Over in DeKalb County, officials say they are motivated to move the county away from electricity that comes from coal and natural gas. As Molly Samner reports, it's the latest local government in Georgia to pass a clean energy resolution. DeKalb commissioners want the county government to use 50 percent renewable energy by 2025 and 100 percent by 2035. Homes and businesses would switch after that. Atlanta, Athens, Savannah, Augusta, and Clarkston have made similar commitments, but state regulators who oversee Georgia Power have more say. This year, the Georgia Public Service Commission will hear from the state's largest utility about how it plans to generate electricity in the coming decades, and they have power over whether to direct it to use more renewable sources. Molly Samuel, WABE News. And finally, tributes are pouring in on the legacy of fashion icon, trailblazer Andre Leon Talley. The former creative director and editor at large of Vogue magazine has died. He was 73 years old. He was last in Atlanta back in 2018 for the screening of his documentary, The Gospel According to Andre. As he addressed the crowd at Savannah College of Art and Design, also known as SCAD, Talley gave some impromptu advice and what they call props to student Simone Seven. I hope you take pictures of yourself. Do you do self-portraits? I do. Yes, you do. I'm sure you do. You're wonderful. <laughs> where are you from? Florida. Where, where in Florida? Tampa. Oh, wonderful. You see, everyone, you're special. You can be famous. You can aspire to be that, like uh, Mr. Mitchell, who photographed Beyonce for the book cover of Vogue in September. Yes. Follow your dream, darling. Follow your dream. Yes, follow your dream. Tally received many honors from SCAD, including the Lifetime Achievement Award, which would later be renamed in his honor. And in 2008, Tally was awarded an honorary doctorate from the school. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Late last year, a group of Republicans gathered at the state capitol here in Atlanta. Now, not all were actual members of Georgia's General Assembly. Many were from other states. The reason? They announced the formation of a, of a Freedom Caucus affiliation, much like the one in the U.S. House of Representatives, the House Freedom Caucus. That was formed back in 2015 and touted as the most conservative of House Republicans. Back then, that group represented maybe less than a sixth of all House Republicans. So who makes up Georgia's Freedom Caucus and exactly what is their mission? Well, joining me now is Georgia Republican Senator Greg Dolezal of the 27th District. He chairs the new Georgia Freedom Caucus. Senator, welcome to the program. I appreciate it. Rose, thank you for having me today. Let's begin here. What is the mission of the Freedom Caucus? So our mission is to expand liberty and conservative principles in the Georgia General Assembly. We have a bicameral caucus, so we have members from both the House mm-hmm. and the Senate, and we are aligned. You mentioned some of the other legislators from around the country. We're aligned with legislators from other states to trade best practices that that promote the ideas of freedom and individual liberty in Georgia and around the country. How many members make up your Freedom Caucus here in Georgia? 
So one of the unique things about the Freedom Caucus that gives us some negotiating power is that we don't announce our membership. So we have a number of members who are public at, at our announcement date, members like Philip Singleton, um, Senator Burt Jones, Representative Sherry Gilligan, Emery Dunahoo, um, and we have a number of others that have, that have stated their own membership. We allow our members to state their membership, but we do not announce our numbers of our membership and who is a member unless they want to do so on their own. Why, why is that? I mean, don't, don't you think people should, you think there's some security reasons or what do you know it's, it's not security reasons mm-hmm. but there's but there's a history both in dc and at the local level of people who step out of line maybe with the, the majority the majority of their caucus leadership being mm-hmm. punished uh, we had an example uh, last year where members of our caucus had their chairmanships that were stripped for not related to the freedom caucus but for just taking a stand on some other issues so we want to ensure that those members who align with us ideologically have a home um, that they have a place they can come for support we have a legislative director that helps us read all, all the bills and, and do bill analysis, which is not something that's provided to us by the state. Um, and so people that ideologically are aligned but may not want to be public facing have that opportunity as well. This being a chapter or a state affiliation of the House Freedom Caucus, how much, I won't say direction or authority, but do they help guide you all in terms of your vision and your mission here? So we're, we are part of a state freedom caucus network. Georgia is actually the first state in mm-hmm. the union to be formed, but we have sole uh, autonomy at the local level over who our membership will be, uh, over what what issues we will we will uh, advocate for, and maybe more importantly, what issues we'll advocate against. Um, and then national is there to support us um, from a research perspective, a strategy perspective, et cetera. When someone lists hears this is you all want to be the most conservative of the GOP here in Georgia. What does that mean? Dissect that for our listeners. Yeah, I think that that's just somebody saying something. That's, you know, I think that most of our members tend to be on on the conservative side of the equation for sure. What I would say is that we want to see the conservative policies that we all campaign on actually pass. Um, Because what you tend to see, and we'll we'll see it this year with the upcoming primary elections, is a lot of people running on the Republican platform Mm -hmm. um, espouse a lot of conservative ideas such as school choice, um, you know, such as constitutional carry, um, you know, different things like that that we've heard about cutting or eliminating the state income tax, things we've heard about for years. We want to turn those campaign promises into actual policy. Do you think that since this is an election year that some of your fellow GOP folks are just saying that because they want the votes and they want to get reelected or elected? There's, there's no doubt, Rose, that we all say <laughs> things probably that um, in this business that we think people want to hear. I, I would hope I'm not in that camp, but definitely, uh, definitely this is, you know, and we, it is a unique year in Georgia politics. You mentioned it earlier. We have a, a, a governor, a sitting governor who's being primary from with his, within his own party. Mm-hmm. Um, that certainly is a unique thing for Georgia and really the country, I think. Um, and then we're seeing a lot of um, other primary challenges on the Republican side that I think do open the opportunity to have some of these conversations that maybe otherwise wouldn't have happened. Is there some type of criteria that needs to be met for folks to join your your caucus? I mean, do you all have like a a test to determine or define a fellow Republicans level of conservatism here? You know, working day in and day out in the chamber with with our with our members, we know kind of where people are ideologically. There's a number of organizations who do voting scorecards. um, And so, you know, Club for Growth is an example for one of those you know, organizations, you can kind of quickly go see who tends to vote more conservatively than others in the, in the chamber. And so those are the people that we're having active conversations with are the people that we think fundamentally hold a very um, firm belief in federalism. 
the idea of states' rights, the idea of individual responsibility and liberty, and want to stand up against any form of you know unconstitutional government intrusion into our lives. A moment ago, you talked about expanding liberty. What do you mean by that? So, you know, the Constitution really lays that out for us, and the government's role is to defend rights. Um, really, that's in the, in the Declaration of Independence where that was laid out, that the fundamental role of government is to defend the rights of individuals. So we see all sorts of things, Rose, on both sides. One would be um, things that we see that come across our desk that would be government taking those rights away. Like what? Um, uh, you know, for example, we see instances where people want to raise taxes, where people want to um, infringe on the Second Amendment. We see examples of even people wanting to have compelled speech in the classroom um, and things like that would be examples of things that we see on one hand. The second thing I would say as a small business owner, almost every session we see ex examples of ways that government is trying to overregulate. Um, one of the things that I talk about is, you know, the, we get asked all the time, hey, what bill did you pass? What bill did you pass? Mm -hmm. And I think the question that I want to encourage our constituents to start asking is what are the bills that you stopped? You know, I vote no in the in the Senate more than every Republican. But my first two years, actually, I haven't seen the numbers for the third year yet. I also voted no more than every Democrat. And to be in a Republican led state legislature where I'm voting no more than all of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, I'm not doing it to be obstinate, but I am doing it because I have a very specific rubric of uh, th of things that I'm looking for in legislation that I'll vote for. And is and that so, and so you're saying that's based on the the ideology you all have of this is based on what we feel Constitution says that we are afforded rights. But if there are those who feel that a particular measure either hinders or tramples on other folks rights, those rights you just talked about, are you willing to say then, you know, we need to we need to you would vote against that? And have you? Yeah, I had, I had absolutely. You mentioned earlier the, um, you know, the fact that David Perdue is suing Governor Kemp, and I'm not, I'm not engaging either way in this race by saying this. I'm just giving you an example. Um, we had that fundraising bill that came before the General Assembly last year, and myself, Senator Burt Jones, and Senator Brandon Beach were the three Republicans who voted against it, along with all the Democrats. So we broke from our caucus, from the Republicans, and voted with the Democrats against that bill. And I can't tell you the reason why every Democrat voted no. I can tell you the reason why I voted no. And the reason why I voted no is it opened the door to raise money during this the, during the, the time that we're in session, which I think potentially opens the door to you know to corruption and fraud, which is something that I did not think it was a step that we needed to take. So as a uh, good, I'm sorry, finish. No, you're good. Go ahead, no. go ahead Russ. So as a state senator, you know the importance of bipartisanship. Your what's your response to a counter that maybe for some folks when they hear Freedom Caucus and the most conservative of the conservative, that perhaps this is an ideology of the caucus that won't support that. But you just said you broke from, you know, your party and you, you voted with Democrats, although this was for, you know, campaign related. But what about with voting rights or, you know, Medicaid expansion and all of that? Yeah, I mean, certainly I, I have differing views probably than folks on the other side of the aisle with what, what you would call voting rights, which I say is tramples on the 10th Amendment and federalism. Um, How? When it's, done, when, it, when it's done at a federal level. Um, well, by the virtue of the fact that the 10th Amendment says that the power is not enumerated in the Constitution or shall be reserved for the people and the states. And I think the states are the best place to adjudicate most everything that's not given to the federal government in the constitution and and um so that's one of the things i think that we're seeing really a 
vibrant debate over. And I, I, I enjoy the debate with my friends on the other side of the aisle over things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that we engage in. You know, it's to me, it's not about party. It's more so about worldview and ideology, right? So it's about what do you think is the fundamental role of government? And I think that the answer to that question then probably informs where you fall on, on a lot of these issues. Well, but and then someone listening says, okay, but when it comes to certain issues, you know, obviously but Republicans and Democrats, they have a stance on it. But at the end of the day, when it comes, what are you all going to do? What, what do you think you all can do? Because you are a, an elected official for all people in your district, not just ones who, even if they didn't vote for you, you're still representing them in a sense. So can you understand someone saying, well, but here you are with this Freedom Caucus and it sounds like, you know, you still want to trample on, on the rights of me as an individual who may not even look like you or who's from a different party. Does that make sense? Uh, I'm not sure I exactly follow what you're saying. Can you, um, can you, well, you're, you are an elected official, right? So you, you just don't represent Republicans, right? Don't you represent everybody that, is that true? Yeah, absolutely. So how do you balance then if, if you have constituents that say, well, you know what, Senator, I have an issue with this because you all are supporting a law that does, in their opinion, trample on someone's voting rights. Yeah, so I think that, that that's, that's what a representative republic is all about, right? President Biden won, you know, election by, the, I think, the smallest margin in the history of the country, or, or one of at least. I don't know my, my history exactly on that. But he certainly isn't representing what I want to get done. So the elections are the answer to that, right? So to the extent that the people in the 27th district disagree with my stance on an issue, I'm up for re-election every two years. Mm-hmm. So every two years, they have the opportunity to go to the ballot box and, you know, throw me out or reelect me. And thus far, they've chosen to reelect me. So um, I obviously put my worldview before the voters and said, here's what I think is the role of government. Here's what here's what I like to accomplish in the Senate. Um, and, you know, one overwhelmingly every election that I've had so far. So you asked what we want to get done. I think, Rose, it's a great question because, well, there's two things we want to get done. We want to pass legislation that we would describe as, as legislation that promotes liberty. Um, what does that mean? Because you, you said that a few times, but I, I think. Yeah, so I'll give you an example. Yeah. What does that Senator mean? Bra- Senator Brandon Beach and I have a have a bill that we're dropping next week to um, to really put some skin around the idea of vaccine passports um, and making sure that, you know, you're not forced to take a vaccine that you don't even necessarily need to take in order to be employed in the state of Georgia. That's but how do you know they don't need to, to have the vaccine to be employed? To be employed? You're saying you're saying you don't think they need to have a vaccine to be employed. But if it's a if there's a business that wants to require folks to be vaccinated for the safe safety and wellness of not only fellow employees, but maybe their customers, you don't think that's important? Well, I mean, I think that we really have issues with with the efficacy. But I think that the problem with every vaccine mandate is it, it takes in zero account across the board any sort of natural immunity. So I have COVID. I've been tested for antibodies. I know I have I know I have COVID antibodies. We know from a number of studies that were done, um, the most recent one out of Germany, the natural immunity actually in most cases pr- um, will produce higher antibodies than the vaccine. That's not so, true, Senator. I, I'll, send the, that, I'll send the study to you. Rose. All right. Now, now, if you send me a study, please make this a credible and viable study. Let me ask you this. Are you vaccinated? <laughs> Do you mind sharing your status? Are you vaccinated? I don't think that, that you know, I, Rose, I mentioned I have natural immunity. So that's, that's the route that I've chosen to take for myself is the fact that I have, I've already had COVID. And, um, 
live a healthy healthy lifestyle when you send me this when you send me this information that you have to support that i'm going to bring you back because we need to have a conversation about that i'd be happy to let me ask you this center how diverse is your membership in terms of ethnicity and race again we don't discuss our membership some of our members have been public we have we have members who are latino we have members who are obviously both genders um you have black members we have members from all around the state do you have any black members again we don't go i there's nobody that's forward facing in our caucus that is an African-American. Does that concern you? Um, you know, I'm more so concerned about what somebody's worldview is and what they believe in the role of government to the extent that we can have members of any race who are part of the caucus that believe that have that same worldview. I'd be happy to have them in the caucus. What do you say then to Republicans of color in terms of if you're trying, because you told me earlier how you all will try and, and present, you know, your platform to folks. Have you had to, have you tried to present your your caucus to Republicans of color? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to, again, I say to anybody of any color, to the extent that you believe in what we believe, come on, let's go take ground together, right? So that's it's not necessarily the leading, um, the leading thought of this caucus is more around worldview than it is around racial, religious, ethnic, um, or, you know, gender background, mm-hmm. sexual identity, et cetera. Th- those aren't, that's not the, the purpose of this caucus. So the, you know, there's, there's a lot of caucuses in the general assembly, everybody from the black caucus to, um, to the cigar caucus. And <laughs> cigar we, caucus. there is a cigar caucus, believe it or not. And they get together and smoke cigars. And, um, those members have a special suit that they wear just for that night. So that it doesn't, um, <laughs> they, they don't come in smelling the next day, but, um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of caucuses in the, in the general assembly. And this is the freedom caucus is focusing on the issues that, that All, we right. All right. Georgia Republican Senator Greg Dolezal chairs the new Georgia Freedom Caucus. Thank you so much for taking the time. Remember now, I need that information. I'll send it to you. Have your producer send me your email address. I'll get it to you. All right. It better be credible, Senator. I don't want it to <laughs> be from Uncle Bob who wrote something <laughs> up. No, no, no. I'll get it to you. You'll see. All right. Thanks, Rose. Thank you. superhero i would want dr strange superpowers i what about you sam whose powers would you want sam says he's not the you don't you're not marvel or dc you don't get into superheroes sam oh sam closer look continues now on 90.1 wabe amplifying atlanta that's what we do i'm rose scott in 2015 pope francis put out a call to catholics around the world to take action to address climate change. It was a call that members of the Archdiocese of Atlanta took to heart, and they work with the University of Georgia to develop an action plan, laying out ways parishioners could take steps to live greener lives. It's a plan that the Catholic communities around the country have taken notice of, and one of the Archdiocese is now recently updated. Joining me now for more on, on this is Kat Doyle. She's Director of Justice and Peace Ministries at the Archdiocese. Kat, thanks for taking your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm very honored to be here today and talk about this. That call from Pope Francis back in, in 2015 came in a letter on care for our common home. What was the overall message in that letter from Pope Francis? I think the real message is, first of all, he was talking to the entire world, not just Catholics. He wanted everybody to know the importance of what he called integral ecology. The fact that people and planet have to coexist together and that we're called to be good stewards of the planet. That was really where he was going with this. Everybody is asked 
be a part of it. Was that surprising, you think, for not just Catholics, but some other folks? Oh, the, the Pope is weighing in on the issue of climate change? surprise a lot of people and and I would say especially a lot of Catholics the interesting thing is that he's a chemist by training and background so this is not something that he doesn't know anything about but more importantly the Pope is like the ideal for people he calls us to be better and holds up the ideal for us to look at so it was important both that he has some intellectual knowledge Mm -hmm. in this area but also he challenged us to look at what the best we could be. And you all responded and you decided to work with UGA to create this action plan. Now, what was in the original one before we get to the updated plan? So the original plan was put together by a group of interdisciplinary interfaith scientists at UGA. And really it was when people call up our office every day, they say, what is the Catholic Church doing? Mm-hmm. Well, what we're doing is we're empowering Catholics to take action. So what they did is they took the things that Pope Francis asked us to do in this encyclical, this letter to the world, mm-hmm. and gave it actionable ways to actually live these requests. So it was an opportunity for people to break down into 10 different areas where they could take action. And before we get to that action plan in terms of parishioners, but did you all also say, well, let's take a look at ourselves. Let's look in the mirror and see what we can do as an archdiocese, whether it's at the churches or at your headquarters. Did you all do some sort of assessment of your own? You know, it's interesting that you ask that because, of course, we asked Catholics and we asked our churches and our ministries to do that. And we kind of had this aha moment where it's like, yeah, okay, we need to take a look at ourselves. So over this past couple of years, while COVID has been the big thing, we have been looking internally at what we've been doing. We've done some energy audits, some water audits. We've made some changes, both um, behavioral changes, as well as changes that we would like others to be able to model. Well, I, I was looking here in, in sort of your plan here, and I want to start with parishioners and how you all were able. What was the plan to, in a sense, get parishioners before throwing a whole lot at them? Because as you know, with folks, when you throw a whole lot at them, they're like, okay, well, slow down. But what was the plan there? Did you start slowly with something simple by just saying, okay, hey, first we need to engage you all. In other words, changing their mindset, if it needed to be, about the importance of this, and then slowly rolling out other initiatives. Well, we had this, and it's funny you say changing their mindset, because we truly believed that it was like this three-part process. You had to change hearts, then you could change minds, and finally you change behaviors. So one of the things that we really worked on was helping people to understand that from the beginning, God called us to be good stewards. So we did look at scripture and spirituality and theology around this issue, which of course Pope Francis did as well. And then what we did is we went out with this action plan to the parishes and said, how can we help you gather together a group of people who are already interested in doing this? And we began to bring those people together in the parishes, and they became a model for others in their church. And so really what happened was this green movement slowly began Mm -hmm. to take root here in the archdiocese where individuals came together in small groups 
and became a model for more in our archdiocese. Did you get any feedback from folks that said, you know, this is, we, can't we just do this in our individual lives? Did you get any feedback or pushback from, from, from some saying, well, you know, should the archdiocese or should the Catholic community be doing this? I'm just curious. Yeah, it's interesting. There are always those that are saying, why is the Pope involved in this? Or why is the Catholic Church talking about this? So it gave us the opportunity to educate them on the fact that the Catholic Church has a repository of formal teaching on social justice issues and care for creation is one of the main tenets of what we're called to do in taking care of our common home. The voice you hear is Kat Doyle. She's Director of Justice and Peace Ministries at the Archdiocese of Atlanta. We're talking about their work to live greener lives in response from a call from Pope Francis to address climate change. We all have up and had some updates since 2015. Let's walk, walk me through some of these changes and why they were needed. So after five years, we really took a look at ourselves. So we had been focusing inward with the idea that we would be able to model this outward. And in order to do that, we took the original action plan, which was great. And it laid out these actions. And we really took a look at it, making people aware that they needed to take action. Mm -hmm. It wasn't enough to just know the issue, to be educated and be aware, but you needed to take actions. And our action plan certainly gives you simple, easy ideas, a little bit more difficult and very complex ideas to do. So we took a look at that and we said, let's focus also on environmental justice. Let's add technology in there. Things like using Zoom calls instead of asking 25 people to drive 50 miles each to talk about something that technology would allow us to do without having any kind of carbon footprint. We also wanted to bring diversity into it. We wanted to make sure that our young people were being involved. We have an intern from Crystal Ray Catholic High School mm -hmm. here right in Atlanta who's working with us and she is doing this project where she's bringing this to her school. So we know that young people have a voice and we wanted to make sure, especially we have an entire chapter devoted to making this something that young people are a part of and hearing their voices. We and were able to also highlight successes and that was important. In the plan that talks about environmental justice, definition and examples, and you all really lay out for folks that may not know this, you all lay out the data, the information, as opposed to just giving them, you know, this, this plan, but you're giving them information to support the ideas and ideology behind this, which is something that a lot of folks don't do. Um, what has been the response? And are y'all partnering with more organizations representative of different ethnicities, communities that really will help push this forward? So you had a couple questions in there. Let me sort of take this in, in parts and mm -hmm. bites, if you will. First of all, in doing this, we did recognize that we probably weren't being as diverse as we should. So when we re-looked at the action plan and updated it, we had over 20, I think 23 different experts and they came from across lots of different places from a monk to a scientist, to a school teacher. So we got a lot of different voices to weigh in on this. We had 10 working groups that addressed this with actual media information. The other thing that we looked at in this is as we moved forward, we wanted to make sure that this was something that everybody had access to. So another one of the things we've done with this is put it online and there are live links. 
in that digital program that allows you to go deeper. Because let's face it, when you say to somebody, here's an easy thing to do, plant a tree, plant mm -hmm. a native tree. Well, what's a native tree and how do you plant it? Where do you get it? And how do you take care of it? So we've gone deeper. How have you all been able to assess from 2015 now in terms of what worked, what was effective? So we have found that an interesting thing is those people who have those parishes, those churches that have gone through the audits and set up a three-year action plan at their church. They, for instance, one church who went through the act or went through the audit, came up with a plan, and the first thing they did was replace all their LED light bulbs. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? There are a lot of lights in churches that you can't just go down to Walmart or Home Depot and buy. You have to go find them because they're specialty lights. So finding those specialty LED light bulbs, when one parish found it, we now are able to share that information with others across the 103 parishes and the 1.2 million Catholics, we're not making them redo the work. Mm -hmm. So we have found ways to share that information. Is there an area that you all will admit to that you probably need to do a little bit more work on only because it's, it's a, you know, a systemic issue as it relates to climate change? I would say one thing that we've been very intentional about is both our original and our new action plan it's both in English and in Spanish. So we have made sure that we are addressing that. But probably one of the areas I think we have been challenged and have been trying to look at doing better is in advocacy, not just in saying to um, the public at large, okay, here's where there are problems, but looking at the specific things. And I'll give you an example. Let's take um, landfills. Mm -hmm. And when you look at landfills that are normally put in areas where people are living out or below the poverty level, mm -hmm. we have not done a good job as an institution in supporting those communities and fighting against those injustices of where the landfills are. We recognize that. We recognize that we have not really been supportive of healing those things that we maybe have not done well as a community. So then let's talk about then how do you turn that realization that you just acknowledge into actionable outcome. If you can't do it on your own, then you partner with someone. How do you, what's the plan for you all doing that? It's interesting you ask about partnering because we recognize we can't do this alone. In fact, we recognize that there are different entities that can help us in different ways. We look at places like Georgia Interfaith Power and Light that's helping us do the audits. We look at things like Draw Down Georgia, who has said, here are 20 some ways that we are going to focus on making changes so that Georgia will become carbon neutral in 10 years. And the Catholic Church has said, that's something we wanna be a part of. We've looked to people who have funding available to help us make change. People like Rutherford Seidel, like Jamie Lanier, like Susan and Ivan Varlamov, those people who have put their money in to help us. And I have to say, I am so excited that the Archbishop himself has dedicated $100,000 from the Archbishop's annual appeal over this next year to help us go deeper, to reach further and to make a difference, to not just talk about it, but to take action. We have two sustainability coordinators 
um, that are engineers that know how to do this work and are focused on helping us not just talk about it, but actually bring about change. And as we wrap up, that brings me to this, because I say it a lot. Folks who listen to this show will know one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite movies. Remember the Titans is attitude reflects leadership. I want to ask you personally, Kat, how have you grown in terms of this area about climate change and and being a good steward for the planet? What can you share? So I have to start. Yeah, I I won't say that I've always been this big advocate for climate change. I didn't really understand it. I was asked to participate a couple of years ago in a three-part series where we started with the scriptural and the theological understanding of climate change. Okay, I got all that. Then we moved to the scientific part. I learned. I opened myself up and said, okay, I'm not really sure I'm on board. And I listened and I learned. And then I did more research. So then when it came time to the final thing, that was how do we talk about this with people who don't agree with us? And I learned how to do that. He, the perfect example, I am now getting ready to begin countertop composting. My family thinks I'm ridiculous. Now with composting, you need to get to a farm and, and gather something, right? Is that? Well, not, not, not necessarily. Not that type there's, of composting? There's countertop composting where you can actually have this bucket that sits on your counter. My, my family's like, oh, that's going to smell. It's not sanitary. Well, I'm, I'm kind of with your family, Kat. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of educating my family because I've done the research. Okay. I've changed my mind. So, you know, it's all about growing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, if we can all accept the fact that let's talk about it, let's learn, let's grow, we will move from changing hearts to changing minds to changing behaviors. And we will create this green movement. Slowly but surely, we're going to bring about change. And I want to tell you, I learned about composting at Sherwood Forest Camp in Lesterville, Missouri. Uh, I, it, and I, I remember going home and telling my family, we're going to start composting. And my dad was like, what? But I educated him about what it was all about. Now, we didn't we did separate our trash. But, you know, that's about the bulk of what we could do. But baby steps. Right. Uh, where do we that's go? That's right. That's right. <laughs> where do we go from here? And for the next, so let's say, five years. So one of the things is we have taken in the archdiocese, the long term approach We've come together and put a team together and we have what we call the Laudato Si Initiative. It's a seven to 10 year work plan. And while we haven't, we, we don't have a specific outcome, we have this idea and direction that we wanna take our work. What's really great about this is one of the main things we've said is everything we do, we want it to be replicable, to be duplicable so we can be a model to not just other dioceses and other churches, but to people across the globe, from the individual to the institution, to be able to do this work. We want to be the leader on this work. Kat Doyle is Director of Justice and Peace Ministries at the Archdiocese of Atlanta. We've been talking about the response to Pope Francis' call to Catholics around the world and everyone to address climate change. Kat change climate cat thank you so much for taking the time i really appreciate it good conversation thanks so much and compost all right <laughs> And Closer Look rolls on now here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. That's what we do. I'm Rose Scott. Here's a question. How do you define success? Many will say it involves perseverance and grit. 
often we hear it's not about the destination, but the journey. I'll never forget laying on the street, pounding my fist on the ground, screaming, I threw it all away. That is Jay Williams, and you'll hear more about that clip in just a moment. Williams is the host of a new podcast from NPR called The Limits with Jay Williams, and it's about success, but described and defined through the lens of the guests that Williams interviews. And along the way, Jay Williams reveals the highs and lows of his own career. If you know college basketball, then you should know Jay Williams, outstanding basketball player for the Duke Blue Devils. Well, back then we called him Jason. Now we got Blake back on Williams, much better matchup, but he goes by him as well. Williams! There's that strength. This one's over? Yeah, it's over. Ah, I remember so many of those games. Joining me now with more about his new podcast, who else? Jay Williams, author, ESPN host, entrepreneur, now podcast host. Jay, let me tell you something. That game against Maryland in 2001, (laughs) Final Four, that's epic. Down by 22 points, man. I can't. Rose, I, I, I got I to tell you, first off, thanks for having me on. Um, but, you know, it, it's after writing a book about it, we had some pretty rebellious moments. And um, some of the things that occurred before those games that led to some of those. I mean, the Miracle Minute was the same year. Mm-hmm. Uh, then obviously the Final Four being down 22. I swear with that intro, you make me get a little bit of a lather. You make me want to come out of retirement at 40 and try to get a 10-day <laughs> contract out here. That's what you make me feel like. You might as well because some teams can use you. <laughs> Look, I know it. the Lakers can use me. I mean, I know. Look, we can talk about ATL. Yeah. For uh, young. Okay. We'll yeah. talk about that another time. Yeah, I got you on that. But we need some. The Hawks going to kill me. Uh, we, we we need some help. Let me just say that. But And I love Trey and, and the fellas, but I'm just saying. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, of course, you all go on to win the NCAA tournament. I think that was 2001. Another title for Duke. Can you believe, Jay, it's been 20 plus years now? Yeah, I'm officially old. Um, you know, the, the, these uh, the young guys call me the OG, and I'm like, what? I ain't the OG. I'm on. I'm 40. Yeah. Wow. I'm 40. Yeah. Okay. I get it. Um, but you know what? It's um, age is a state of mind, mm-hmm. and uh, I gotta tell you, Rose, from the the life that I've been able to live, it's almost like at 21 years old, I had a rebirth. Mm-hmm. Right. I had a second opportunity to try to experiment and do things differently than what I had tried the first go around. So I feel more like I'm in my twenties than I do in my forties. And that's the state of mind that I I hope that a lot of people could have because we have an opportunity to live here and, you know, and to set an example on a daily basis. When you reflect on that Jay Williams back then, Uh briefly for our audience, how would you describe that young man and his, his ambitions? What do you want to do? <laughs> Crazy competitive. Um, push the limits for sure. Um, when there were boundaries around me, I always had to go over the line of that boundary, which obviously led me to my own accident. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, still loved his parents, um, was infatuated to a degree with fame and recognition. I never received a lot of attention. But I was the only child, so I started to yearn for that more uh, from women, from people, and didn't really get a chance to settle into the lifestyle. But the lifestyle was such a drastic adjustment for me. I never had money before. This is 
you know, have a chance to be wealthy. And, but it wasn't just about wealth. It was about the attention and the fame that came along with wealth mm-hmm. that made it very hard to navigate. So confused would be the correct word. And part of that, part of your journey with all of that, and in this new podcast as the host, yeah, you're in conversation with others, but you're also sharing what this road to success has involved. And it includes some pretty tough and dark moments for you, Jay. Yeah. I mean, everybody's like us. Mm-hmm. I think over the last two years of the pandemic, I think everybody's been on edge. We've all have had isolation in different forms or facets. How do you balance what new mandates are at work? Um, this whole world is different. You know, my kids just caught COVID a couple of weeks ago over the holidays and my daughter is immunocompromised and that was a scary moment for us. So I think we all have these moments that we're learning how to, you know, there's a, a great line that sometimes you can't put together the plan until you jumped off the cliff. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, the last two years has been an epitome of what my life has been like for the past 20 years after having my accident. I was trying to put together the plan after I've already jumped off the cliff. And that's been hard as hell to deal with and to manage, especially in the public eye. Let's talk about that cliff coming out of Duke. Everybody knew Jay Williams was going to go be this awesome guard in the NBA. And then something happened. Take our listeners through just briefly, if you, what you want to share. Yeah. What happened? Well, you know, I, um, my rookie year was frustrating came from a place at Duke where we were a lot more like a family and people looked out for each other. My first year with the Chicago Bulls, it felt more like I was a high paid recreational athlete where everybody was out more so for themselves, more so than they were out for what the team was trying to do. And um, I felt so lonely that year. I got involved with riding bikes with a group of individuals. It felt more like a team to me than my actual team did on the court. Mm -hmm. And I came back from a trip I woke up in my apartment after a good nap and decided to take my motorcycle down the street to my agent's house, rode it there. I had no helmet on, no protective gear on, was just being 21 years old and justifying my notions by saying I'm just going down the street. And uh, after I left my agent's house, he was standing there staring at me in the doorway saying I I shouldn't be riding. And I said, you know, we shouldn't be on a private plane to Las Vegas the night before that game. Mm -hmm. Right. Justification once again and took off down the street on my bike, was coming towards a stop sign, clicked the bike into neutral, revved it the first time and was fine. Lived it, revved it the second time louder than the first. It was fine. And in the middle of that third rev, just heard the bike go click, click and popped the wheelie. Wish I would have let go and let God. But my reaction was I wanted to control everything in my life at that time. And I didn't want the narrative to be out of all the people that told me I shouldn't be riding a bike for this to happen. So grabbed onto the handle wheels and the bike bottom wheel spun out. Next thing you know, I was headed towards my, my fate going 65, 70 miles an hour, moved the bike to the right, clipped the whole left side of my body on a utility pole. And, um, you know, spent the next three months in the ICU mm-hmm. multitude of surgeries mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, years and years of depression after that, that, chapter in your life you talking about that and also the highs you know, your journey has been incredible all of that combined being in conversations with people with this new podcast from NPR you reveal all of this but with this the segments that you've already done are you able to have a different 
takeaway regarding success? I mean, with all these conversations and what you just shared and with the folks that you interview, what's been your takeaway so far? Success is in the eye of the beholder. You know, um, the power of internally telling yourself what your narrative is, is very important. One of the narratives that I used to allow to be around me, Rose, was that you were the basketball player that threw it all away. You know, what could your career have been like? Mm -hmm. I allowed other people to always think or talk of me about what could have been instead of what was right in front of your damn face, mm -hmm. which was me, my yeah. second opportunity to live a life, to be here, to be present and to be thankful and to be humbled and to be touched, frankly. You know, my first job after making millions of dollars and playing a, a sport was $35,000 a year at ESPN, carrying around my own camera equipment, sitting in the back of planes, standing at Radisson Inn hotels, mm -hmm. having $25 for per diem, right? And talking to everyday people, I'm like, damn, this is the real grind. I'm over here talking about the grind on the court, right? I've heard my dad wake up at 435, go to work and appreciate your position while planning your promotion and tying his Windsor knot and working until seven o'clock at night. It's not until you go through that to you understand like, okay, like this is the real world. How do I figure this out? Mm -hmm. And how do I attack this new world with a higher, more evolved learning process than what I had when I was younger, but still similar mentalities with how I attacked working on the court. But it was a, it was a different type of experience. And I think being able to share that blue collar aspect being reminded of blue collar work um, and how I've had to get to where I'm at through that lens, uh, combining the world I came from, that's something that we need to highlight more because that's important. And I think we're going to hear a lot of conversations like that with you. It's a new podcast from NPR called The Limits with Jay Williams, who's an author, ESPN host, entrepreneur. Jay, I wish we had more time. Great conversation. When you come to Atlanta, I got a court for you. Just two old gym rats. That's all we're going to be. Hey, look, we don't got to move. We can shoot from one place. <laughs> that's, that's the best way I learned how to play. It keeps everybody safe. Hey, I appreciate it. Jay, best of luck. Continued success. I appreciate you taking the time. You too, Rose. Thank you so much. I can still shoot the three. Nah, I don't know about going up and down the court because, you know, what happens when you get older. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Our other producers, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker because he rides bike. I need to get Kevin on the basketball court. He's got some height, but I think I could take him. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash closer look. And, you know, weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. We're amplifying voices at what we do. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.